It looks great. If you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up Psalm 55. Psalm 55, as we uh, begin our journey tonight, is a psalm that's written by David at a very <clears throat> dark time in his life. Um, most commentators believe that this is a psalm he penned uh, following Absalom's rebellion. So, if you don't remember Absalom, Absalom was one of David's sons. And uh, there was a, a lot of sibling rivalry, rivalry that took place after Bathsheba. Remember, David fell with Bathsheba. Then the baby that Bathsheba had died. Um, then the next child she had lived, the Lord gave that child a special name. The Lord called that child Jedidiah, uh, which means beloved of God. Uh, they called... Uh, that child, uh, Solomon. And so the, the line of Christ is going to follow through Bathsheba and through Solomon. But in the other kids, there is a lot of uh, problems that took place. David actually and his family, as long as we're talking about dysfunctional family, David takes the cake. So he had one son rape a daughter. And then the, the brother... You remember, he had multiple wives, so they didn't all have the same mom. So the brother of the girl who had been raped killed the son who had raped her and then ran away to a, another country. And if I remember, it was Gath, um, which is interesting because Gath was the town that Goliath was from, who David killed when he was a boy. Remember David and Goliath? <clears throat> but I'll have to look. I'm not sure that's wholly accurate, but we'll see. Anyway, he runs to Gath. He stays in Gath for a while, stays with his uncle, um, and then he comes back. He decides to come back, and when he comes back, David wanted him back. David wanted to forgive him. David wants his family to be okay. He wants the sword to stop, but one of the things Nathan told David because of his sin, because of some of the choices that he made, he said, the sword's never going to depart your family. Now, Here's what we do. Sometimes we look at those circumstances and we say that's, that's God's judgment on David's family. So, so let me help you twofold. Uh, yes, that's God's judgment on David's family. And it's because the, of what David did. In other words, the, David sowed a seed of rebellion against God to sleep with a woman named Bathsheba in front of all his kids, his family. They were all grown adults. They all knew and saw what took place. And that seed of rebellion brought fruit. And that fruit is what is called God's judgment. But I don't want you to see God's judgment as something that wouldn't have taken place anyway. It was the natural course of action that would happen in David's life because of the sows he's, he's because of the seeds he sowed. Right? Galatians chapter six. We all remember that, right? Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap, right? He says, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows. What we plant is what comes back. And that's what we see taking place in David's family. Now, what God does is he tells, it, tells us before it ever happens. He says, look, David, sword's never going to depart from your family. It's like you came to a crossroads in life, David, and the path you chose is a path of 
sword in your family, constant struggle in your family. That's what that's what that road brings. Had you chose a different road, things might have been different. So part of David's great heartache at Absalom, Absalom comes back, they, they, he plays nice on the outside with David, like, I'm your buddy, I'm, I'm your son, I'm back, you know, I love you, Dad, whatever. But on the other side, on the flip side, he's working all this, planting all these seeds of rebellion to overthrow David. One of the reasons I love David, if you remember, I've shared before a number of times, David was not a self-promoter. So when this rebellion takes place, David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel, joins with Absalom. They rise up against David. Instead of fighting, David just leaves. He just walks out of the city. And he's going to seek God. He's going he's to look for God's direction. And ultimately, God's going to tell him to fight. And, and uh, he's going to gain Jerusalem back. But he doesn't do anything until he knows for sure what God wants him to do. And that's an important concept for us to hold on to. But in the midst of all that, just try to put yourself into the mind of a father who's going through all that. His sons betrayed him. Uh, there's war. People are being hurt. There's this constant fruit coming to harvest from his sin and how much he would be despairing of life. When you read... Psalm 55, I think you get a chance to see into David's heart during that time. What's going on in his heart? Because his world's all sideways and upside down. and We have to recognize, it's important for you and I to realize, every choice we make, it, it, has, it brings with it ramifications. There's no, there's, no, there's no freedom in the sense that I, whatever I, every day I'm the master of my own destiny. You know, control's an illusion, right? Do we control anything? You don't control nothing. It's when you realize you don't control anything is when you drive down the road and some guy coming the other way uh, hits you. And the next thing you know, you're flying 50, 60 feet in the air, missing trees and hoping you clear that tractor that's there on the corner and landing in relatively soft grass that's been uh, flood irrigated just that day and then you roll over and you see a a harley and a giant wad but right before that harley hit the truck right before that hit you're waiting to feel your legs snap because your legs the first thing that should have hit and the crash bar takes all the impact and never touches your body you don't control anything I'd love to tell you it was my spider sense and my superhero powers that enabled me to hit that truck head on, fly through the air, miss all the trees, land in the grass, not get hurt, whatever that was six years ago when I first got here. But it had nothing. I had no control. I couldn't control what that guy did when he, when he turned in front of me. I couldn't control any of the things that were going on. All I could do was rest in the hands of a God who loves me. And has a purpose for my life. And trust in him. And I think really that's where we see David finding himself in, uh, in Psalm 55. So here's how he begins. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. Now, anytime I go through and I study the Bible, I look for those verbs. Like what's he saying here? He's saying, give ear to my prayer. Attend to me. Hear me. He wants God to hear the cry of his heart, right? 
He wants to know that the Lord is listening to his prayers. So he says, I am restless in my complaint and I moan noisily. And I, I, one of the challenges when we say the word of God is to recognize the word of God's written in a different language, Hebrew and Greek. And so everything doesn't translate. You guys ever heard like, you maybe have a friend who speaks another language and he's from Mexico perhaps and he, he knows a joke but the joke only makes sense in Spanish? You tell the joke in English and it's like, yeah, that's not funny at all. <laughs> Some things don't translate. When we look at this, I'm restless. Uh, how's he saying? I'm restless in, in my complaint and I moan noisily. Here's the idea behind the Hebrew. He's restless and distraught like an army that's been utterly demoralized. Well, just think of, a, of an army that just knows no matter what happens, they lost. No matter, even if they win, they lose. And you'll have an idea of what it's like for David right now. If he wins, what happens? He kills his son. If he loses, what happens? Evil men are running the, the nation and, and people that are going in the opposite direction of the Lord. So no matter what happens, he loses. You get what I mean? So he's saying, man, I'm demoralized. I, I'm so restless because he knows, he looks at his circumstance, at the harvest that's come, and it breaks his heart. So he's saying, man, I'm restless. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what happens from this point forward. I I cannot escape the pain that I'm going to feel. And why? Look at the next phrase in verse 3. Because of the voice of the enemy. Right next to that I wrote Absalom. Sometimes we read that and we go, oh, it's because of the things the enemy's saying. I, I don't think that's the point that he's making. I think the point that he's making is... My enemy is my son. I held him when he was a baby. I had dreams about him, things he would be. When he grew up, when he was young, when he was just a toddler, man, there was so many incredible plans and purposes I had for his life. And now, my enemy is my own child. So he says, I'm distraught, I'm, I'm, I'm already beaten because of the voice of my enemy. I think what he's saying is the voice of my enemy is the voice of my own child. Because of the oppression of the wicked. Think about it. The oppression of the wicked. A lot of times I've shared with you before when we go through the Psalms, the wicked is not a particular person. The wicked is a system. It's a destructive system in the life of mankind. So in terms of wicked, just put sin. Because of the oppression of sin. What's happened in David's life? He fell into sin. And what came out of that? The destruction of his family. He's watching, he's watched his daughter's life ruined, one son killed, and another son in rebellion. So he's, as he's looking at all this, and he's, he's, as he's seeing all this, he's saying, because the voice of my enemy, I believe, is Absalom, because the oppression of the wicked, I think he's talking about the destruction in his life wrought from sin. Look, the most wicked thing we're ever going to face in our lives, it lives inside us. It isn't something out there with a pitchfork and a forked tongue and a pointy tail. Sin lives in us. And that battle that we have with our sin nature, that's the most... It wasn't the devil that made David commit sin with Bathsheba, it was his own desire. So that's what he's saying, because of the oppression of the wicked... For they, that word they, refers back to the voice of the enemy and the oppression of the wicked. 
They bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. What's the Bible tell us? The wages of sin is what? Most of the time? All the time. The wages of sin is death. What's sin's desire? To destroy. To destroy, to wreak havoc in our lives. And so that's what's going on in David's life. So look how he, look how he describes it in verse 4. My heart is severely pained within me. Can you imagine a greater pain than as a parent <laughs> finding your greatest enemy to be one of your children? My heart is severely pained within me. And look what, how he describes it. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And all of those are exactly how I would describe knowing that I may be called to go to war against my own child. I, 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 couldn't, I don't know that I could describe it any better than that. As severe pain, terrors of death, fearfulness and trembling, and horror. War's horrible enough all by itself, but when your war is against... Your own son. And how do you, I don't know, I look at my kids, my kids are all grown. I got uh, grandbabies popping out all over the place, waiting for number three right now. Uh, you know, but I, every time I look at them, they're still that little five-year-old. JC's a little, the little kid who used to stand on my end table and do a, a jammies on dance. Whenever it was time to go to bed, he'd stand up on the end table and he'd start singing, jammies on, jammies on. And he start dancing on a table. That's what I see. He's 27 years old now. He'd be embarrassed if he knew I was telling that story. But he's not here, so I can do it. But that's how I see him. Now, whether he's my enemy or not, that's still what I see. So, you know, that's the, that's the heartache for me. That's the heartache that's going on in David. Look what he says in verse 6 and 7. Because you and I have felt just like this before. So he's looking at this circumstance. He don't want to deal with it. He don't want to have to have the battle. He don't want to have nothing to do with it. So he says in verse 6, So I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, and I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. He's like, I just wish I was someplace else. I'll just pack it up. I don't want to be king. I don't want to have nothing to do with another. I just want to go out in the woods. He's probably thinking back to the days of the cave. And once upon a time, we're going to read a couple of Psalms, if I don't talk too long, uh, about David's times in the cave and, and how he was kind of, it was kind of a special time. It was an exciting time. God, he saw God do amazing things. It was a day of small beginnings. And David kind of enjoyed that. And I think at this point, he's like, I wish I could go back there. Forget this, this palace and the responsibility and all this stuff. I just want to pitch it all and go out into the wilderness. In fact, I just came down from Pine today. It was pretty cool up there. I spent two days sitting by, see if this don't sound good, sitting by a little river, uh, occasionally bothering to get the end of my fishing pole wet, sometimes just putting my feet up on the chair in front of me and listening to water roll by while I think about how good this nap's going to feel. That's pretty nice. David's saying, I, I just want to go back to that. I just want to go off in the waters. I don't want to have to deal with this. Look at verse 8. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. It's like a, a description of a hurricane. So David says, I see the hurricane coming. I know the pain and the anguish it's coming. 
and I would just like to get out. Just let me get out. And then he's going to let us in a little deeper into, uh, into what he sees. In verse 9, he says, Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. Now, what, that's a description. That should, that should sound familiar to us. If we're students of the Bible, destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. When did that happen? The Tower of Babel. What was the Tower of Babel about? Rebellion against God. All the people got together to rebel against God. They're going to build the tower to the heavens. All of mankind is united in his effort in rebellion against God, so God confused their tongues. And by confusing their tongues, the nations divide, and you have different peoples all from one blood come from that point forward into time. So he's saying, basically he's pointing back to this, 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 this rebellion from the past. And he's saying, wipe out the rebellion like he did at the Tower of Babel. Maybe you won't even need me, God. Just confuse their speech so they don't know what they're doing. And, and they'll just drift off into other places. And he's, he's longing for that. Listen to how he describes what he's seen. Now he's left Jerusalem. He's outside looking in. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Now the description in the Hebrew language, I want you to picture this poetically. Violence and strife are people. You get what I mean? It's like, a, it's like two people named violence and strife. That's how he's describing it poetically. So I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night, you see the word they? That word they go, refers back to violence and strife. So day and night they go around on its walls. So the violence and strife are walking around on the walls, causing all kind of trouble. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Again, describing two uh, desires or sin walking around just like violence and strife. Only these two, there's iniquity and trouble, sin and trouble, are also in the midst of it. uh, And destruction is in its midst. And he's describing again, destruction as a person. So you have, he's, he's looking at people walking on the wall and all this chaos going on. He's like, look, there's violence and strife. Over there is sin and trouble. Right over there, there's destruction. And oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. So he's saying as he's outside the city looking in, his son's taking control of the city. No battle. He just left. And all this chaos has taken place. And if you go back and you read the story, you realize all the trouble that took place. And Absalom came in. David left. David left his wives, his concubines behind. Because in that day, you would, you would never, if you were a decent person, you wouldn't mess with them. That's like messing with the wives of the king. So Absalom came in and he slept with them all. He, he defiled the house. He, he did that on Ahithophel's suggestion. And then Ahithophel says, you need to go finish David. He's out there. Go finish him right now when he's low. Go get him. What was the guy's name who, who confounds his, distru- his, his idea? Hisheo? Heosheo? I don't remember. But one of David's buddies was still behind. And he said, don't listen to Ahithophel. You better get your army built up before you go get him. So Absalom stayed. But as David's watching, he sees all the destruction, all the sin, all the, all the pain. And all of it, he, he, he impersonates as people running around on a wall 
And he's just watching the city falling apart. And he's thinking it's all fruit from my sin. This is all the harvest of the choices that I've made coming home. Look how he describes it in verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. For then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and we walked to the house of God in the throng. So whether he's describing Ahithophel or or uh, Absalom doesn't make any difference. Either way you look at it, he's talking about, I've been betrayed by someone who was close to me. Someone, not just someone was a, a casual acquaintance. We used to hang out. We had sweet counsel together. That means they counseled me and I counseled them. It, he said we used to walk to the place of worship together. When, the, when, when we would all gather together to go to the temple... So it was somebody he walked with, somebody he sat in worship with, somebody that was part of his life. Then in verse 15, he says, Let death seize them. Let them go down alive to hell, for wickedness is in the dwellings and among them. Now, let me tell you what he's saying. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into, not hell, but the pit. Uh, again, another Old Testament story. You guys remember Korah and Moses? Moses is leading the children of Israel. A guy arises named Korah and he says, why should we listen to you? Who made you the leader of us? So let's decide the person God wants. So they, if you remember, they had Aaron and everybody else who wanted to be a part, who thought they should lead, put their rods in, into the tabernacle and the next day they come back. And Aaron's rod had budded. It had uh, burst forth with almond blossoms as though it came to life. And so that Aaron was God's choice. And they gathered around and they had Korah and all the people that were with him over there. And Moses and Aaron over here. And the earth opened up and swallowed Korah. They went alive into the pit. They went alive into the grave. <coughs> It was God's response to rebellion against his anointed. His anointed being Moses. In this case, David is his anointed. And David would would much rather God bring supernatural judgment on Absalom and those armies than David have to go do it. Right? David don't want to take a sword in his hand and go fight his son. So he says, Lord, if, if this is rebellion, then deal with it like you did with Korah. Just open up the ground and swallow him. And I, can, I can mourn my son, but I don't have to be the one who took the sword. I don't have to be the one who took the sword into battle against him. And this is what he's asking. And then in verse 16 he says, but as for me, <clears throat> David's making a choice. As for me, I will call upon God. And the Lord shall save me. David says, look, whatever. I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. I know I messed up. But I'm, I'm with you. So either God saves me or he, 
ends my reign, either way, I'm in God's hands. I give myself wholly, completely, totally for Him. I will call on the name of the Lord. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud. So how much of the day does that cover? Evening, morning, and noon. That's all of it, right? The reason he begins with evening, do we know? The Jews all establish a lunar calendar so their, their day begins at evening, not at morning. It's not sunrise for them, it's sunset for them. That's the beginning of the day. So evening and morning and noon I will pray and cry aloud and he will hear my voice for he has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me so now he starts to speak in the past tense he has redeemed me i'm his he's brought me to this point he's he's brought me to this place i'm just going to trust in him whatever he has for me for there were many against me god will hear and afflict them even he who abides uh, from of old. Then he says this, because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. They're unrepentant. Remember I told you Absalom came back home? When Absalom came back home, David reached out to him and said, Son, son, look, if you're sorry, if you've repented, if, you're, if your heart has changed and you want to come home, Come home. And Absalom said, oh yeah, I want to come home. But his heart was never changed. It was still in rebellion. So he didn't fear God. So he didn't. He made his plans. Look, I don't want you to think Absalom is without guilt. Absalom got to make his choices too, right? Absalom got to make his decisions. A sovereign God is working through it all. But Absalom... He, he, had, he could have repented, but he never did. He could have chose to walk right, but he never wanted to. Hatred had taken hold of his heart, and so hatred was going to stay. Unforgiveness had taken hold of his heart, so unforgiveness was going to stay. So he would have no fear of God. He doesn't want to walk with God. He doesn't want to obey God. Then in verse 20, he, this, he refers back to the familiar friend, okay? The guy who he knew, the guy who, who he walked with and worshipped with. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. So, we, I was at peace. He, he had done what he had done, I had done what I had done. I thought we had come together at peace. But he lifted his hands against me. And he has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter. Really, if you read the story, Absalom really sounds like Absalom. Because Absalom was a smooth talker. He could smooth out everybody's, you know, the way he worked things out. But while his words were smooth, war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, but they were drawn swords. So he was, all the while he, he was coming against David. All the while he was coming against him. So look at verse 22. So cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. So you see David, he's, he's, he's bummed and he's hurt, but he's saying, look, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Look, he's basically saying, if I'm God's guy, and I'll be God's guy still tomorrow. If I'm not God's guy no more, then then I don't want to try to stay someplace I'm not supposed to be. God will take me out. 
But it's going to be God who does it. I'm looking to God. I'm trusting in God. Doesn't make any sense. Never in the history, as far as I know, has a king under rebellion walked out of his capital with no fight. Just to see if, if God was still with him or not. David trusted in the Lord wholly, completely, utterly. But, a word of strong contrast. Now he's looking back to verse 20 and 21. He says, but you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Who's he talking about? The one, the familiar friend, the one whose words were smooth, who had softer than oil words, but in his heart were, was a sword. He says, but you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. It's just another term, poetic term for death. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men will not live out half their days. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men. God, you judge between he and me. But as for me, I will trust in you. So David crying out, I'll trust in God. So Joab says, David, I'm going to take the army out. We're going to go get them. David says to Joab, whatever you do, don't hurt Absalom. You leave him be. David's still hoping there can be reconciliation with his son. So they go out and the battle's fierce. The Lord's with David. And he routes the armies of Absalom. And Absalom is riding away. To flee, to get away. But he was such a pretty man, and he was so vain, he loved his long hair. And so his hair got caught up in a tree and pulled him off the back of a horse. Same difference. And there he is, hanging out of a tree, by his hair, and the army catches him. There's not much fight going on, right? And they come back to Joab. What do we do, Joab? Absalom's stuck in a tree by his hair. He can't fight. Could Joab have fulfilled what David asked him to? Could he have brought in his son as a prisoner and left the door open for reconciliation? Maybe. What did Joab do? He took a spear, killed him. And the mourning of David lasted days. He wept and he wept and he wept. He wept so much, Joab had to go tell David, if you keep weeping, you're going to tear the heart right out of your army. They won't be able to fight for you no more. You go tell your army they did good for you. They won the battle. And you read the story and you think, ah, Joab, that, that's, that's a dirty guy. Ah, don't worry, David's not lame. He's not dumb. He knows what's up. When Solomon becomes king, you know what he tells him about Joab? He says, hey, Joab's no good. You can't trust him. You can't trust him, Solomon. When you become king, you take Joab out. It's like reading the script of the Godfather, man, when the kings switch places. All those debts get paid. But none of that really helped Absalom, right? His heart in rebellion against his father, he goes to the grave without being able to be reconciled. 
that brings to conclusion the Psalm 55. The broken heart of David saying, no matter what happens in this, I'm going to lose. When he comes to Psalm 56, now he's going to say, what can man do to me? Now this goes back previous. The days of the caves when, when, uh, when David uh, actually flees to Gath. Um, so David is, is running from Saul, and here's what he prays. He, he calls out to the Lord and says, Be merciful to me, O God, for men would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Now this is when David's being chased away by Saul. Saul's king, we go back in time, David's a young man. It's the beginning of his army. He's living in the caves. He's being chased by Saul. He runs to Philistine land. He runs to Gath, and there he stays for a while. But the people in Gath say, isn't this a dude who killed Goliath? What in the world is he doing here? So there raises up a ruckus in Gath. The people of Gath don't want him, and David's afraid they're, they're going to kill him. So, so he comes up with some neat ideas on how to get away. But while all that's going on, he writes this psalm as he's considering the battle, the issues that are going on for him when he's there in Gath. Verse 3, he says, but whenever I'm afraid, okay, so first he starts with his thought, my thought, I'm afraid. So what does he do? He replaces his thoughts with God's thoughts. So I'm afraid, but what does God think? So I will trust in you. These are God's thoughts. In God. I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? What could happen to me? God is saying, what? I've got you. His thoughts full of fear. God's thoughts for him full of faith. Both can't exist at the same time. You will either choose to walk in faith or you'll walk in fear. If you're walking in fear, you can't walk in faith. They're mutually exclusive. So if I want to walk in faith, I have to make the choice to replace my thoughts with God's thoughts. Is God's word true? Does God come through? Does God promise me no pain in life? Oh no, he doesn't give us that one. But we can trust him. We can hope in him. We can cling to him. It says in verse 5, All day they twist my words. The they refers back to the flesh or the man. Why should I be afraid of man? All day long they twist my words and their thoughts are against me for evil. So my thought is I'm afraid. God's thoughts are he's able to deliver. Their thoughts are for my destruction. Which one do you want to hold on to? They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps And when they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In other words, will they get away because of their sinful choices? In anger, cast down the peoples, the nations, O God. For you number my wanderings. I love this verse. And you put my tears into your bottle. What's he saying? You guys know that old hymn? I know John knows it. What is it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. What's, what, what hymn is it? Come thou fount. Come thou fount. It was supposed to be you, John. You didn't know? I have to 
<laughs> I was thinking. So, same thing. He says, you number my wanderings. Now, the word for wanderings are those times when I get out of line, when I, when I walk away or I go too far down this way or I took a left when I should have took a right. You number my wanderings. It's not that he gave up on you, that he stopped watching you, that he stopped caring about you. He still cares. He numbered them all. He knows which ones they are. I don't remember the numbers of my wanderings, but God does. And he stored every tear I ever cried. Then is it, is it not a comforting thought? That the God of the universe who created all of this cares enough about you to have treasured every tear you ever cried. It's not that God in heaven didn't care for the tears you cried. It's not that God in heaven was like, come on, get over it. He says he caught them all in a bottle. When you go to Israel... In some of the shops there, they have what they call tear bottles. I, I have one at my house. It's got a wide lip on it. So that when you weep, Jewish moms, Jewish families sometimes would capture all their tears. It, would, it, was, a, it was a very highly prized possession to have the family's tears. And David here is saying, God has them all. Every tear ever wept, he held on to. He kept them. And then he says, are they not in your book? So he recorded them. He's numbered your wanderings. He's captured your tears. And in a book, he knows everything about you. He's written it all down. That is a far greater degree of caring from God toward me than there is the other way. From me toward God. So when we read John 3.16 and the scripture declares to us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It should not be mind-boggling to us. This is the same God who's numbered your wanderings, who's captured your tears, who's written your days in his book. Everyone has value to him. In fact, in the Gospels, it tells us that not one sparrow, which is a rather insignificant bird, falls to the ground. Not one sparrow dies that God doesn't see. And then he says, but you are of much greater value than a sparrow. In the same section of scripture, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Some of us have less than before, but God knows the number. He knows how many you had when you were a baby, when you were 10 years old, when you were 50 years old. He knows it all. Because you matter to him. And that's what David is discovering. Look, I have all these other people that seek my destruction. The world is against me. The world system is against me. The world is in opposition or rebellion against God. I've chosen to stand with God. i got to make sure to put my thoughts out, to hold on to God's thoughts, to not be afraid of man, what he can do for me, because God loves me so much that he knows every insignificant detail of my life. And one day you get to heaven and he'll have a bottle. And maybe he'll show it to you. Look, every tear you ever cried, I didn't miss one. 
I was there every time. Because you matter to me. You are of value to me. In verse 9 he says, So when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. And this I know, because God is for me. Oh, it's quoted in the New Testament in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? If God is for us. He's saying, God is for me. I know, I cry out to God, God is for me. God being for you does not absolve you of difficulty, pain, sorrow, hardship. When we read Romans chapter 8, what does it say? It says, all day long we are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. That doesn't sound like an easy life, right? But it goes on to say, but none of these things can separate us from the love of God. Though there's sword in my life, God loves me. Though there's pestilence in my life, God loves me. Though there's pain and hardship and hurt in my life, it doesn't change the fact that God loves me. And he was with me every step. He was there to comfort if I would turn to him. He was there to hear me and to tell me I'm for you. We have a hard time with that because in our minds we think if God's for me, then everything should be easy, right? If God's for me, then all this stuff ought to work out. Like that old, like that old uh, Garth Brooks song, right? All those times I prayed, Lord, the only person, the only thing I really want is this person in my life. Oh, just let me have them. And then we wait for Garth Brooks to write a song that says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Yeah, thanks for saying no, God. There was something better. You had something better in mind. You had something else in mind for my life. David is learning in this psalm to say, man, I trust God. He's with me. He's for me, not against me. I always think, when I think about that phrase, I always think about Jeremiah 29, 11, and and uh, I'll say it over and over and over again. A lot of people put it on their fridge and hang it on their wall. And it says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And a lot of people put that up and they hold on to that verse. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't lose context. Because the people who received that verse had their entire families torn apart. Their houses destroyed. Men were in one line. Women were in another line. Children were in another line. Sometimes they never saw each other again. And God was telling them, you're going to captivity and life is going to get really hard. But I want you to know, I have a plan in it all. And my desire is not to destroy you. But it is going to hurt. So I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. And my thought toward you is good, not evil. I'm not trying to wipe you out. I'm trying to give you a future and a hope. So he says to the people, go, build homes, have families, live your life, and know I am with you. Sometimes we, we think that we translate, God with me means everything is good. 
I catch more fish than the guy I'm fishing with. That means God's with me, right? If I go hunting with somebody else, that means I get what we're hunting for and they don't get it. Because that means God's with me. Or maybe you're a good person. I'm not a good person. But maybe you're a good person and you think God being with you means both of you got something on the hunting tree. You caught the same amount of fish as each other. I, I would rather be able to poke you and say, neener, neener, I got more than you. But that's okay. As we look at that, that's just our distorted view of what it means to have God with us. God never promised ease and comfort. What God promised is, I will promise to get you home. And I will promise to do whatever I got to do to get you home. God's desire is to get you home. And whatever it takes to accomplish that, in your life or in somebody else's life, God will do whatever he can to get you to that place. So what does David do? He says, in God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? (laughs) The chorus of the song. He's going to repeat it uh, twice. Then in verse 12 he says, Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. Vows, promises I've made to God are binding. If I promise God I should do something, I should do it. He says, I'm going to keep my promise. And what's the promise he's talking about here? I will render praise. What What do men praise? They praise what they love. What is the one thing God's looking for from man? That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. That you would love him. And what do we, how do we render love to God? In praise. When you love God, you praise him. When you love your favorite football team, you want to talk about it all the time. If you love fishing, you want to talk about fishing. Well, that's the same thing. I'm praising fishing, I praise hunting, or I praise the Lord. We should praise the Lord. He should have that place of, of premium love in our life. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? The description that he gives there is walking in the darkness with God's light. And this world is a dark place. Bad stuff happens. But we're called to walk in the darkness with God's light to guide us. 119th Psalm tells us it's the word that's our flashlight. It's our headlight. It's the light for our path to show us the way that we ought to walk. To show us how we ought to go. And that's the word of God he's laid out for us. We come to Psalm 57. We have another Psalm of David. A victim of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So we're again around the same time as Psalm 56. We're dealing with the cave days. David in the cave days. Look how he starts it. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Does that sound familiar? Almost the same way he started the one before, right? For my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. So David's saying, look, things are a little bit rough right now, and it's dicey, but I'm going to find shelter in your wings. Now, flash forward. Jesus, looking over the nation of 
of Israel, looking over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who slayed the prophets to kill the ones that I have brought to you. How often I wanted to gather you together like a hen gathers chicks beneath her wings. But you were not willing. David here is saying, I just want to find shelter under your wings. I want to be like that little chick that comes under mama's wings. And under mama's wings feels like he's got all the protection that they need. So David is saying, I'm going to trust in you. I'm just going to sit here under your covering. Under your protection. But we come fast fast forward to the time of Christ, the time of Messiah. And the nation doesn't want God's covering. The nation doesn't want God's protection. In the same way, it's possible for you and I to... Depending on what struggles we're having, what things are going through in our life, we can become rebellious against God in the same way and say, I don't want to be under your covering. We act like spoiled children. You're not giving me what I want. I want this. You didn't give it to me. So forget it. We think we're hurting God. I don't want to be under your covering. We're not hurting God. We're hurting ourselves. As Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem, as he's headed to the cross, he's going to die. What's going to happen to Jesus? He's going to rise again. He's going to go sit down at the right hand of the Father. And emphasize the beginning of the call to the kingdom. And as he does this, what's going to happen to those people he's saying that destroyed his prophets and cast out the people he sent to him and wouldn't come beneath the wings of God. What's going to happen to them? In a few short years, the Romans are going to surround the town. They're going to start eating their children. They're going to die horrible deaths in rebellion against God. They're going to go into eternal separation from God if they haven't repented and believed in the one whom God sent, who did they hurt? And when we act like that, just be honest, what are we acting like? It's like when you have two little kids, right? And they're, and they're all playing together nice and things are going good, two little three-year-olds. And one of them doesn't want to share the bubbles with the other one. And so it takes the bubbles and they get in this skirmish and they just, in anger, dump the bubbles out. Well, then nobody's going to play with the bubbles, right? Just acting like a child. When I was a child, I did childish things. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I put away the attitude of rebellion. I put away all those things that hurt me and hurt others acting like a little spoiled baby and I said oh it's time for me to be a man to be an adult to make intelligent decisions to recognize that things in life don't always go your way is there anybody here that hasn't experienced that yet things not going your way oh so we all have my great nephew maybe we're all part of that fellowship Oh, the unashamed, we've gone through those difficulties. So why would we reject the one who is the only one who gives us hope? That all that pain and hurt had a purpose.
Why would I pitch all that and say life has no purpose? Who did I hurt? Me. And the people associated with me. I don't want to have that attitude. I want to have an attitude like David. I will find rest in the refuge beneath your wings. Verse 2, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. And he shall send from heaven and save me. Isn't that what he did? Prophetically, he's, he's speaking of, I'm going to trust in God, I'm going to stay beneath his wings, and he's going to save me. What's God's ultimate goal? To get you home safe. To present you to the Father without spot or blemish or any such thing. To be able to stand before Almighty God, the Father. The Son wants to be able to throw his arm around you, bring you before his dad and say, Dad, look, they made it. I covered them with my blood. They're here. They're yours. Perfect. That's what he wants to do. And how was he going to accomplish it? He gives us a hint right here. He shall send from heaven and save me. He will come. He will hear the cries of the people and he will come. And he has come. He has come to save. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. The one that wants to destroy him. He's saying, David did this, guys. And it's so vital for us. David said, God will reproach Saul, not me. How do you treat your enemies? Are they people that you need to deal with? Or are you willing to relinquish vengeance to the Lord? Are you willing to let it all go to him? Because you need to be able to. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We give it to him. And I don't care what they've done. I don't care what somebody did to you. I don't care what vile thing occurred in your life. It doesn't make any difference. We are called to give all vengeance to God. He's better at it than you. I promise you. And what, while your heart is filled with unforgiveness and, and frustration and anger and spite and all those things, all that is, is poison in your life. And the person that you're so angry about is sleeping like a baby. And you're not able to. Because you're so hurt. Having unforgiveness in your heart is like drinking poison and waiting for somebody else to die. It don't work. You drink poison, you die. The other person sleeps like a baby. So what did David do? He showed us a way. He said, look, God, you take care of Saul. I'm not going to worry about him. You take care of him. When he gets too close to me, I'll go further away. You take care of him. You give it away. You relinquish control. Did you ever have control? Remember, that's where we started. Did you ever have control in the beginning? No. Control is an illusion. It is an illusion. You want to understand how big an illusion it is? Then go out driving on ice sometimes. And you'll figure it out. John Corson was married. His wife was coming home late at night in Oregon. Went around a corner in the mountains where they lived. Slid on black ice. Went off the road and died. No control. 
he spends a period of time raising the kids by himself, falls in love with, a, with another woman who was kind of helping him out, gets married again. His 16-year-old daughter loves the Lord, is doing amazing, coming home from a youth camp late one night around the exact same corner. Hits black ice, slides off the road, and dies. You don't have control. Control is an illusion. And being angry at God for what I don't have is dumb. It only hurts me. So what do I do with the anger and the frustration? What did John Corson do with his broken heart? Lost his daughter, lost his wife on the same corner. The God of the universe who created all the heavens and the earth. You mean he's not able, he didn't have enough power to stop that accident? Sure he could. Why didn't he? Because it doesn't fit in God's plan. In order for God to get home who he needed to get home, it had to happen that way. What's my job? My job is not to think I know better than God does about what he's doing and what he's allowing. How arrogant is it for me, the thing created, to say, what are you doing, God? Do you know what you're doing? Because from my viewpoint, it don't look like you know what you're doing. Yeah, and God says in Isaiah 55, you're right. It doesn't look like I know what I'm doing from your viewpoint. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. My plan is perfect, and my job is to get you home. So I won't allow anything in your life that doesn't further that. So if it comes... So what do I do with my anger, my, my frustration, my unforgiveness, even if it's toward God? What do I do with it? What am I supposed to do with it? Relinquish it. I'm not in control. God is. So I take all that frustration and all the fear and all the anger and all the resentment and I give it to Him. And I say, I trust you are going to figure it all out. And I don't have to have all the answers. And if I don't have to have them, you don't have to have them. When I was 13 years old, I was working at a, a camp for the handicapped and was... There was an attempted molestation by one of the guys who was running the camp with me. Now I get all bitter and angry and say, why do I have to go through all that stuff? You want to talk about uncomfortable, scary, frustrating, being angry. But God calls me to relinquish, to rest beneath his wings. To say, God knows what he's doing in my life. Now I'm an old man. And God's given me the opportunity to help a lot of people who have gone through similar things. As a result of the things I've been through. God's given me the opportunity. God will use your pain to help someone else. If you're willing. 
And when you use your pain to help somebody else, you know what happens? You get better. God hasn't lost control. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's accomplishing. He knows his plan and his purpose. And he is working a perfect work. Verse 4, my soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. It's like he's picturing this nightmare that he's having. You guys ever had those crazy nightmares where all this nutty stuff is going on around you? And that's what he's describing. I'm, <coughs> I'm among lions, surrounded by men who are on fire. But it doesn't seem like a good place to be. And he's looking at all these things around him. But then he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. I'm going to take my eyes off of the horror. I'm going to take my eyes off of the scary things. I'm going to take my eyes off the disappointing things. I'm going to take my eyes off of all the things that bring frustration and fear and issue in my life. And I'm going to turn and put them on God. And if I keep my eyes on him, I'm going to be okay. I just got to keep my eyes on him. Keep my eyes on the Lord. For they have prepared a net for my steps, and my soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. So this is showing God's providence. He's saying, they're trying to trap me, but I'm keeping my eyes on you. And I see the net and the hole, but I'm just going to follow you. And as I'm following you, as I'm going where you go, they fall into their own traps. Whatever has to happen, has to happen. They fall into their own traps. I am going to trust the Lord. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast, and I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake the lute and the harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be above all the earth. What we see happening in Psalm 57 happens so often in the Psalms of David. What is that? He begins with his pain and his worry and his concern, and he slowly begins to move his eyes from his problems or his trouble or the issues and put his eyes on God. And once he gets his eyes on the Lord, he finds his way through. And that's what we have to learn to do. All the little problems in life, all the struggles we face, all the disappointments, all the the bad things that happen, we got to not put our eyes on the storm and the waves because we sink. we got to put our eyes on Jesus. That's the only way we're going to be able to walk on the water. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.